Welcome to the Nashville Vineyard Podcast. For more information, please check us out at www.nashvillevineyard.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a great day. a series right now called Christian 101, and we're, we're learning about what, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do Christians do? How do they live? I think our heads are full of knowledge about how Christians believe. Uh, I think we all kind of have an idea of what Christians believe, but if, if we look around and we look at ourselves, what we believe and what we do sometimes have little to no uh, correlation. Sometimes we believe things, like I believe I should go to the gym every day. I know that that is a good thing. Obviously, I've skipped a couple of years. (laughs) So we understand that believing and doing are are different. There's there's sometimes a disconnect uh, to that. And so we just want to say, what what, what does a Christian look like? Uh, What do the scriptures say a Christian looks like? So we've been talking through this, this uh, key verse, which is a very uplifting Christmas verse here, in Matthew 7, uh, 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If there's ever a time to pray, it's after that verse. Jesus, we thank you. We worship you. We ask that you have your way here today. We declare once again, this is your church. We are your people. Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what it is you have for us today? We bless your name. Amen. So in talking about that, that's a verse, honestly, that has kept me awake. It's kept me uh, wondering, um, and, it, and it haunts me every six months or so as we're, as we're leading this, this church that continues to change and grow very rapidly. Uh, every, every six months, the Lord arrests me and says, hey, it's easy. It's easy to fall off. It's easy to do things for God. To do like level two things for God, cast out demons, right? I mean, that's a big, big thing. Prophesy, do miracles. It's easy. You can do those things and not know Jesus, not be someone who's known by Jesus. And, and that's a verse that makes me pause and reflect. And, and so that's what we, we did here. We were planning on doing Advent for Christmas. It's a wonderful thing to do. And the Lord just wouldn't let us and, uh, and said it's time to, to revisit uh, the basics, so to speak. And so we started with talking about a Christian reads the Bible. And we talked about the importance of the Bible in our lives as Christians. We talked about how little we really do read the Bible. And, and if we compare our consumption of media and time uh, to our consumption of Scripture, uh, at least in my life, it's painfully, painfully small. And we understand that it just shouldn't be. And so we're working to, to say, okay, let's, let's spend more time in the scriptures. And, and one of the things about doing this prayer and fasting in the beginning of the year is, is that when you're not eating, you should be praying. You should be reading the scriptures. When you're not doing social media, you should be in the scriptures and in the word. It's just a way to say, hey, how can we do this 
uh, a little bit more intentionally. Uh, then the next we say that a Christian follows Jesus, becomes a disciple of Jesus. A Christian works to, to, to bow their knee to Jesus, to, to be known by him and to know his ways. And that comes from reading the scriptures because apparently you can make a Jesus up in your mind and worship that Jesus and it's not the real Jesus. And so we, we know that we find who Jesus is through his word and through the scriptures. And so then we, we say that once we become a disciple of Jesus, then we go and make disciples of Jesus. A Christian makes disciples. A Christian goes out and, and works to not just make converts, not just get people to make a decision to follow Jesus or to say a prayer, but to make disciples. And that's a long process. That's a, a process that you, you're walking with people. You're, you're, you're fellowshipping with, with people. You're being intentional. And we're asking questions like, how many disciples have we made in the past week? How many, how many times have we sat with someone and, and worked to disciple them in the past month? And I'm like you. I'm just, I mean, it's, it's probably not a lot. And so we, we just want to say, okay, well, let's, let's start doing this Christian thing. Let's start living this Christian life. And let's, let's take the scriptures as truth and apply them. And not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So this week we're talking about that a Christian is a part of the church. And we're going to be looking at what, what is church? What, what does church mean? And, and, and how does that play out? It, it's painfully obvious that, that people associate your, your devotion to Jesus with your church attendance on Sunday. Did you know that? People measure, they take, they take studies and they say, how religious are you? And then they say, well, that equates to how many times do you go to church on Sunday, which is really funny. And, and the statistics are not a lot. The statistics are, are changing. And, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a pastor of a church and you talk to other pastors, you, we're noticing trends. And, and used to they could measure how, how large is your church by your average Sunday attendance. And really, that, they can't do that anymore. And so because our attendance has dropped off and, and there's other things going on. And so we've, we've encapsulated this idea of church as a Sunday morning experience. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. That's not in the scriptures. And it's not really in, in the early church paradigm. And so we wanted then to say, okay... We know that church is important, and I'm preaching to the choir here. Literally, some of you are part of our praise team. I, I get it. We're not, this isn't a service about, like, we should be in church. You guys are in church, so good job. This is about what is the church, and, and, and how does that play into our lives as Christians, and what does the scripture say about church, and how does that work? Because culturally, we've, we've fallen out of the tradition and habits that Sundays are devoted to church. It used to be Sundays were we're devoted to church and businesses were closed and it was just an off day and you would go to church and you would go home and go to lunch and it was just a part of our cultural tradition. That doesn't mean things were beautiful, right? That doesn't mean even that that had a, a big effect on culture. Some terrible things were happening right alongside that. So we're not trying to hearken back to some golden era. But we do want to say, okay, we, culturally we've, we've fallen out of this tradition of, of putting going to church as a central point of our lives, so then do we have language to say, well, why are we here? What is, what is this? 
and what are we doing? And as I've talked to people, the answer is no one's really sure. And so we just wanted to take some time and, and to look into what, what do the scriptures say about church and, and, and what do we then have to respond to that? So we're going to look at that. Um, thankfully, Jesus is the first one that mentions church. You may not know that. But Jesus was the first one in the scriptures to use the word church. And it's a word uh, that's ekklesia. It's a Greek word. And uh, what it says is it means a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, an assembly. An assembly of people convened at the public place of the council for the purpose of deliberating. And so in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's the first time that it was used in scriptures. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It's interesting that, that picture that he gives, I think Jesus spoke with intentionality in the scriptures, were written under the unction of the Holy Spirit. And so the, the wording and the phrasing is important. And as we think about the gates of, of Hades or hell will not prevail against the church, gates don't move. Did you know that? Gates stay put. And so Jesus' picture of the church is rushing the gates of hell. And understanding that as they're bringing the kingdom to bear in the realm of darkness, that darkness doesn't stand a chance. That was the way that he was using. This is the language that Jesus used. Not that we'll shut our doors and hell just can't get in. It's that hell is afraid of us as the church. It can't prevail against it. That's the idea. I like this. All right. It's true and it's exciting. I feel excited talking about it. Because there is a, a dark and dying world and we can choose to cower in fear or we can choose to run out against it. To, to rush hell with water guns. And Jesus feels certain that we will win. He, he has no question about that in his mind. So much so, he only says it one more time. He only talks about church one more time, and he says in Matthew 18, 17, and if he refuses to hear him, he's talking about if there's a, if there's a disagreement amongst believers, uh, what to do, and he says if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, second time, and the only other time that he uses it. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So Jesus is very confident that it's his church, and he's very confident that there is nothing that will stop it. So confident that he doesn't go into grave detail on how we're to organize church, which is odd. I was reading some, some church history books, and they say, you know, for, for this movement that literally changed the world in a, a record amount of time, the founder of the movement spent very little time outlining how this was going to play out which is really interesting to think about. Because if I were Jesus, I would spend the bulk of my time with the people saying, look, when I leave, like, here's what you're going to want to do, and you're going to want to set up this, and you're going to want to establish this system, and, and this is how it's going to... But he, he, he didn't care about that. And I started wondering, like, why, why didn't he mention more about this church? And it struck me because it's his. He's very confident in himself. 
He's very confident in his ability to continue the church. And so he didn't need to go into it because it's his. Oftentimes we try and take it back from him. We try to make church in our image. But it's his church. And he's just very confident about it. And this word literally means like a public gathering, a gathering outside in a public space of people coming together from different parts of the city, of the county, uh, of whatever, and they're coming together as a church, a called out people. That was his imagery. And those people were then later called the body, the body of Jesus. We see where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So what is the church? It's a called out group of people. It's Jesus' church. It's a church that, that, that will not fail. And it's his body. And so as we're thinking in the context of what does it mean to be Christian and what does it mean to be a Christian as a church, we understand that we're the church, not this building, not that building, not that building or that building or that building. We're the church, and Paul calls the church the body of Jesus. And individually, we play out different roles within that system of being a body. The church is a body. It's Jesus' body. He's the head of it. And so as we're picturing this, this idea of church, we need to remove the paradigm of, as it's something that you do on a Sunday and, and begin to look at it as a paradigm of it's something that we are existing within a greater sphere under the head and rulership of Jesus. He's the head. We're the body. That's what the scriptures say about church. And it says that Christ is the head of the church. It belongs to him. And then they continue, the, the New Testament writers continue to draw out these metaphors about church because you understand that the New Testament was written to the church, to the people of the church, and, and the letters of the New Testament are actually outlining on them on how do we live in light of the truth that we, that we know about Jesus in light of the resurrection. So what does that make us? And how do we relate to one another? And how do we relate to people outside of the faith? And how do we relate to Jesus and the Holy Spirit? How does this work? That's what the letters were for in the, in the New Testament. And they're outlining different ways that this plays out. So Paul later, he's talking to the church in Ephesus. And he says, he says okay, you know, I've told the people in Corinth that it's, it's a body and you're members of it. And, and, and in Ephesus, he uses a different metaphor. And he says that, that uh, in in uh, 525, he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. So we're not just the body of Jesus, which when we think about being a part of the body of Jesus, that should cause us to reflect on how we live our lives as members of his body. And we think about like sin, like Paul talks about sins that we do to our own body, which is so vile because now we're in Christ and we're part of his body. And it's just putting that perspective of saying, you're a part of Jesus' body. And then he takes it a step further. He says, you're his, you're his bride. The church is, is betrothed to Jesus. It's matrimonial language that, 
that Paul is using here. And he's saying that, that you're the bride of Christ and Christ is waiting for a spotless bride. And it, it causes us again to say, jeez, that's a big deal. If we think about a bride, a bride is, is, is belonging to one. A bride unites with one. And this husband and wife, there, there's nothing outside of that that supersedes that relationship, that dynamic. Which is why it's so counter when we begin to put other things before Jesus, because it just doesn't make sense. But because we're the bride, the brides just don't do that. If, if you have a bride and, and she's with another man, that system doesn't work. Something's off. And so as, as we're, we're brides to Christ, we have to remember that, that we're belonging to him and him only. And we remember other things that he says about, you know, he's a jealous God. He doesn't want to share us. I don't want to share my bride with anyone. And neither does Jesus. Which is why things like idolatry, things that come before Jesus are such a big deal because it, it's not just that it's a sin and it's something that's wrong. It's outside of the parameters of how we're supposed to function. It's just other than the way that we're supposed to relate and live as the bride. It's his bride. And he's coming back for his bride. And he's looking for a spotless bride, not a tarnished bride. Not a bride that's with someone else. So then he goes even further, and he's, he's talking about, uh, Paul's talking to Timothy, but, but he's, he's picking up on language that Jesus actually used. Uh, we see in Matthew 12, 49, he says that stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Paul says to Timothy, he's picking that language up in, in 5, one through two, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, all in purity. He's saying, hey, listen, as you're relating to one another, what, what you should be doing is seeing people in light of a family structure, a family unit. He's picking up on what Jesus said in, in Matthew. He says, the church is, is a body, the church is a bride, but the church is a family. And, and the church is, is positioned as a family, not an extended family. He doesn't use aunts or uncles or cousins because we all have aunts or uncles or, and cousins. That, I mean, it's Christmas. We're going to have to see some of these people. You know, second cousins, the ones that you're not even sure how they fit into this whole equation. Maybe it's just my family, we're from South Alabama, and there's a lot of things going on within that family tree that I'm still curious of. And so he doesn't use extended family language because he wants you to see how crucial and important this, this family nucleus language is. He uses fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers. It's how we're to relate. The church is a family. We're, we're a family. Before anything else, we're a family. 
And if we don't feel like a family, then we're outside of the paradigm. We're, we're outside of what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be family. If I think about then that metaphor, if I draw from that, and I say, okay, well, a family, a family takes care of each other. A family supports one another in hard times, in good times. There's no question of whether or not you're, you're, you're in the mix, that you're supported by a family. Now, here's the caveat to all of this. The enemy has done an incredible job at ripping down how we view families. The family metaphor isn't quaint for a lot of us. It's broken. And as we look at relating to others as family, then we bring in the brokenness that we've experienced within our own family. And that's not an accident. Because a healthy family is like the strongest cultural force in the world. Did you know that? That when a family is relating healthily with one another, they can shape and change the landscape. They can shape and change cultures. There's nothing stronger as a cultural force, as a mover, moving things down the field culturally than an intact, healthy family unit. And I would say there's nothing more devastating than a broken, unhealthy family. And so as we're looking at the church as family, we have to look at the church as a redeemed family, as a family maybe not like our own families, but a family that, that we all aspire to be a part of. Healthy families love each other no matter what. You can't remove yourself from a family. It doesn't matter how hard you try. A healthy family takes care of each other. They, they give up things that they want to do for the greater good of a family. A family begins to think larger than just one individual, which is why they move culture so far, is because they're already thinking at an enterprise level of how do, we, how do we grow and move a family along? They're self-sacrificing. They serve one another. They have different jobs. They have different chores and tasks. They, they have this safety component around them that, that they know that a healthy family, if you're a part of a healthy family, you understand I'm protected. And I know so many people don't feel protected in their own families. And so then what do we do? We have to then protect ourselves. We have to do things that guard our own selves and and we move from a family to an individual. And we begin to look out for our own self. And so we lose the paradigm of this all for one and one for all. That's the church. I was listening to uh, um, the podcast that I listened to about different businesses. And uh, one of the business uh, owners, she had led the company to um, the first billion uh, woman-owned, uh, multi-billion-dollar company uh, in the world, and uh, she was from a family of 12 in South Carolina, very poor. And uh, she was talking about it, but it was a very healthy family. And she mentioned, uh, she, she was just talking through, because the, to the interviewer, it's just, I mean, a family of 12 is, you know, 
like a unicorn. We don't see that a lot. And so I was just wondering, how does that work? And when it's healthy, the answer is very well. And, and so what she was saying, she said, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but we had some money. And, you know, the parents worked and, and, they, and they did that. But they, they didn't need money because they felt secure, they felt safe, they felt loved, they felt protected, they felt invested in. And this family would have different roles. And the roles were carried out with precision by all of the members of the family. And, and there was even a system where, where like the third born would take care of the sixth and, and all of those sort of things. And, and so they had it all worked out. And then on Thursdays, Thursdays they would all gather together back. And they would sit down and they would have a family business meeting. And, and, and the father would say, okay, it's been, it's been payday. And so I'm going to give you some allowance and we're going to talk about the week. And then they would say, it was really interesting. She said, every week the father would restate our family values and mission and what we're existing for and the dreams and goals that, that the father had for the children. Guys, that's a church. That's a picture of, of how we're supposed to live and relate. And this idea of family is just, it's a striking picture. Because what we then have to do is we have to look like in, in this context. If you call Nashville Vineyard your, your home church, then you replace that with your home family. And then we have to say, we have to ask questions that are difficult. Say, does it feel like a good family? Do we feel protected, taken care of, loved unconditionally? Do we feel supported? Do we feel cared for? And these are questions we have to ask. And then if, if the answer is no, then we have to fix them. We have to, we have to get back to the meaning of church because the meaning of church is family, it's body, it's bride. Now see, there's always two sides of a ditch that we can get off of. So on the one side, what you want to do is you want to say, well, there is nothing like that in America because now it's all buildings and budgets, and I was trying to think of the third one, sermons, how's that? Buildings, budget, sermons, instead of body, bride, family. And so we'll look at that and we'll say, well, so then we should just throw out everything and, and start from scratch, because this is not what happened. This wasn't the intention, which I get, but the problem is that history actually tells us that what we do here it's very similar to what was done in first century church. The way that we, we gather and meet on the Lord's Day was established in the first century church on a Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Now, even the days have been contested, but the majority have said, well, let's gather on Sundays to, to show the resurrection and how important and crucial the resurrection is. And so they would gather on a Sunday. Now, Here's a different thing. Typically, it was before dawn. So we're, I'm okay with not being just like that first century church. And the reason was is because they didn't have Sundays off. You know, they didn't, they didn't have uh, a Sunday where they could go and watch football, and, and it, was, it was everybody's day off from work. It was because we got to get back to work, but let's gather and let's meet on the Lord's Day, and we'll do it first thing in the morning. And so they would actually gather. That's what the word means, right? A public gathering. Now, initially, the church was small, and so this would take place in homes, mostly. And people, people would gather in homes, and, and they would be smaller groups. 
but that's not always how it would happen. Sometimes they would gather in the synagogues. The church in Jerusalem did that quite a bit. They would go into the synagogue and they would gather on Sunday in the, in the outer courts as their public place. And we're going to read a, a letter real quick here uh, that sort of goes into this. But they also, then they would gather, and you know what they would do? They would sing songs. That was part of it. They would sing the psalms. And, and they would worship together. I don't know if it was exactly like what we did today. But it was in the same spirit of that. They would, they would worship together. And then they would, they, would, they would take the Lord's Supper. Now, this is, is not exactly how they took the Lord's Supper. They would have what they call these love feasts. And they would gather together, and, and they, would, they would have meals, and they would, they would break bread, and, and they would remember the Lord's Supper. And we see, like, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to them and saying, like, man, when you guys are together in those in those love feasts, you're not, you're not remembering Jesus. You're getting drunk, and others are, are starving because you're, you're not getting the picture here of family. You're still individualized. And so Paul's giving instructions about the communion at that time. And so they would gather together. They would eat. They would, they would pray. There would be people that, that were appointed as, as teachers or elders. There's actually things that we can find, and we'll read about it in a minute, that look similar to this. But there's a difference. Those things were a means to an end. And the end was family. And so those things helped to facilitate family. Now what can happen is that the means become the end. And the gathering the service, the sermon can be seen as the end. And then when that happens, you have other things that happen, but it's not family. And then you can tack on it at the end, oh, by the way, we're a family. But it doesn't achieve it because the means lead to an end, and the end is family. And so the early church actually had systems in place. They did things, and they were organized took up offerings, they, they fed the poor, they remembered the people without family that were a part of their family, and they took them in, and they, they helped the widows and the orphans, and they were living as family. And, and no one, Acts tells us, was in need, because when you're in a family, I mean, it doesn't matter if Jackson loses his lunch money, I mean, I'm going to make sure he gets to eat, and he's my kid. And so like Acts is telling us, they were a family. And they met together, and no one was in need, because they're a family. So when we, when we get upset with the modern church, and we say that let's throw that out, we, we don't need to make the mistake of, of understanding that we're still doing the same means, but maybe we've turned some of these means into end. Maybe the, the Sunday gathering has, is the end goal. Maybe, maybe the tithes and offerings are the end goal. Maybe worship and sermons are now becoming the end goal. And so then what we do is we put all of our efforts and resources to that. But we forget that the end goal was family. The church is a family. The church is a family. And this on Sundays, and what we do, you know, right after this, to celebrate and eat and small groups and all of that, 
facilitate or should facilitate us becoming more and more close as a family. And if it doesn't, then we must reevaluate and say, okay, have we elevated a means to an end? Are, are there, is there a breakdown in the system? We should constantly be reevaluating to say, are we a family? And are we doing things that further family along? And then we understand that the, the family is bigger than this. It's bigger than, than our congregation. It's bigger than what we're doing here. It's bigger than that congregation. It's bigger than that congregation or that congregation or that congregation. It's, it's a family, and we're part of the same family. We're part of the same family as our brothers and sisters apart across the street at the Nazarene Church. They're family. And the guy that started the, the vineyard movement a long time ago said, your brother or your sister are never your enemies. And so often in the church, we, we make other churches our enemies. We compete with them. Or, or we villainize them because they have different thoughts. You know, disagreements actually happened in the first church as well. Quite a bit. Because the problem with church is it's full of people. And the problem with people is that they're full of people. And, and we're just, we're, we're full of people. And, and people are broken. And we're trying to understand our new identities. We're trying to wrap our heads around it. And, and if we read the New Testament letters in, in that light, we can see, wow, we've made some strides from some of the things that they were doing. But we're still a mess. And we'll see other people that may be a mess differently, and we'll villainize them and, and point them out and, and all of that. But our brother is never our enemy, ever. They're our family. The Nazarene Church is our family. You ready for this one? Even that Catholic Church, our family. They're our family, and we're, we're inhabiting the same land, and, and we should work to get to know one another to begin to lock arms. Jesus had one prayer, request. He taught us how to pray. But he said, if you pray, pray for me. Pray that we be one, just as he and the Father are one. Make us one, his body. We don't want an arm laying off somewhere that's just twitching around. We want to go find it, put it back in the body. And that's Jesus' prayer. And so maybe a, a spotless bride, maybe, maybe a healthy body, maybe a healthy family looks more like all of us coming together from all over and beginning to, to reach out and, and to be a family. We'll have different homes. We'll have different ways that we relate, but we're family. And so we were thinking, thinking through that. I, I wanted to tell you about my week this week. Um, a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, I had a dream. This isn't that I had a dream speech. Uh, this is much less underwhelming. But I had a dream, like in the night. And sometimes the Lord speaks to us in dreams. and uh, We try to use those as confirmations, not starting points. And so the Lord, the Lord gave me a dream. And in the dream, I was asleep, and he, I, he woke me up. 
And he woke me up and he, and he said, hey, I want you to go across the street to this church called Crosspoint. And he said, I'm going to be pouring out my spirit there and sending revival. And I want you to go and meet with them and pray for them and help them in any way. And in the dream, I said, are you kidding me, Lord? Literally. I said, hello. We have a church. Can you do that with us? This is literally the dream. And I was mad. I was like, I'm not going. No way. And the Lord rebuked me. And it wasn't pretty. And, and he asked me a question. He said, are you my servant or not? Well, if I said no, then that means he's not my master. And then it's just it's bad news from there on. And so I said, okay, yeah, I'm your servant. And I started getting the picture. And he said, well, then do what I told you to do. So in the dream, I'm like, okay, I'm hesitant. I go to Crosspoint. And uh, Crosspoint, if, you, if you're not sure, is, a, is one of the larger churches in the area. Uh, they do things very well. And, you know, in my brain, in my dream, I thought, do they really need my help? Uh, because they just, they're a great organization. I mean, they got some, some great stuff going on. And so I go to Crosspoint, and as I'm going over there, I'm like, well, I'm getting kind of excited because, you know, this is kind of fun that the Lord has sent me. It feels like something that I read about in Acts. And so in the dream, I'm like, so Lord, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? And, uh, and he says, well, during this time, there's going to be things that are happening that they may not have a grid for, and so you're going to help uh, frame in some of those things uh, for the grid. Like, okay, that sounds cool. And I'm just waiting. I wake up. And so I'm uh, sometimes uh, I get excited easily. And so I'm like waking up, like, I'm going to Crosspoint today. And I was just going to bang on the door and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So my wife is smarter than me, and she says, hey, you should just chill and let the Lord open a door if he chooses to. Okay. And uh, so I'm sitting, and, and honestly, I, I kind of forget about it. And, uh, and so then I started getting these invites from different people to this prayer meeting that Crosspoint was having on Tuesdays at 11. And I, didn't, I honestly didn't connect the two things. And, uh, and so... I just did, I didn't want to do that because we have a prayer meeting here at 11. Did you know that? And, uh, and so I was like, I'm going to go to our prayer meeting at 11. Well, so eventually I got a lot of invites until last Sunday. Uh, one of the ladies uh, who was instrumental in bringing Ken Fish to our church for the first time, uh, she said, hey, I just feel like you have to come with me to Crosspoint on Tuesday for this prayer meeting. You know, she was like one of the planting members of Crosspoint, and she was telling me, she said, the Lord is doing incredible things over there. They have a new pastor and all of this sort of stuff, and I want to introduce you to the pastor. I know him. We're good friends. And I was like, oh, okay. And then it dawned on me, wait a second. This is that dream. So I go over to Crosspoint and, uh, at 11, and they're having intercession prayer, and it's, it's really good. And I didn't know what to expect. I've only been there once for the ice skating extravaganza they have in their parking lot. Which, you know, says enough for itself. I mean, that's incredible that they can do that. Um, we don't even have hot water. So I'm trying to figure out hot water. And so I go there and, and you know, honestly, I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm intimidated. I, you know, I'm sitting there. And so she says, well, come on afterwards. Um, and you can really, I mean, sense, like, the Holy Spirit was just brooding over this group of people. There's probably 50 people. And um, it was just 
it was just impactful. And people were getting these scriptures and saying, I just felt like the Lord lead me to this scripture and this scripture. And so afterwards, she takes me and she's like, let's go meet uh, the pastor. And so uh, I'm on my way. And then one of his staff members pulls us over and she's like, hey, um, I had a vision. And I've never had a vision. I don't know what to do in this vision. And I was like, that's interesting. And so we got to pray and, and all of that. And so then I go and I meet uh, Pastor Kevin. Uh, who, who's the new pastor over there? And I'm like, hey man, um, I'm Grant. I'm pastor church across the street. Uh, that's the Vineyard. And so he's like, Vineyard. He's like, you have no idea how influential Vineyard has been in my life. And I was like, well, that's cool. And he starts asking me, have you read this book? I'm like, yeah, I've read that book. And, uh, and so then he grabs me and he like looks at me. He's like, are you guys seeing stuff? Are you seeing signs and wonders? And the miraculous? And I was like, yeah, actually. I mean, you know, because this Sunday we had like three people that had hearing trouble. And their hearing trouble was gone after prayer. And you see a lot of that kind of thing. You know, we always want more. But we are seeing stuff. And, and so he says, uh, he says, oh, man, we're starting to see stuff too. He's like, it's incredible. And I was like, it is really incredible. And so, like, he's talking, and we start opening up, because I don't know who he is or what kind of person he is. And I was like, so, can I get weird with you for a minute, Kevin? And, uh, and he was like, yes, get weird. And so, <laughs> I was like, so I told him about my dream. And I said, I think I'm supposed to pray for you, man. And he grabs my arm. This is not an exaggeration. And we run. And he falls on his face. And he says, pray for me now. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And literally, like, I was just feeling the Holy Spirit, and I was just praying for him. And, you know, and, and the only thing I could think of to pray was, Lord, do greater things through him than you've ever even thought about with me. That's my prayer. And, and I'm just praying that kind of stuff. And then he gets a word of knowledge for me that was the exact same word of knowledge we got when we were sent out as a, as a planter uh, a couple years ago. Really interesting stuff. And so then he said, I have something for you. Come with me. He's super intense. And, uh, you know, really fit and good looking. And, and you know, and all, like, yes, I'll follow you anywhere, man. Let's go. <laughs> and so we, he, he leads me up. We go to his office. And, uh, and he says, you know, I, when I got here, I just felt arrested by this concept of revival. I just feel like the Lord is birthing revival. It's just all I can feel and think. And he said, you know, when I tell people to... That, that I'm, I want revival, he said, that you get two reactions. Their eyes either well up with excitement or they glaze over. And he said, I just felt like this whole time I've just been beating this drum. And he said, so I got this made. And he handed me this mallet. And he said, I had this mallet made just to remind me that I'm supposed to beat the drum. He said, but when you're praying for me, the Lord told me there's two sides of a drum. And he was like, you're going to beat your side and I'm going to beat my side. And we're going to beat it together. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible, right? It felt like something out of Acts. And I was just like, oh, okay. And I'm standing in his office, and from his office, we can see our bell tower, our steeple. And the Lord immediately reminded me that right after we procured this building, we got, I got the final, yes, you can have service here. I was on cloud nine. I thought I was invincible. Right? I thought, like, the Lord is going to do so much. It was just, it was miraculous, and I just was on cloud nine. And 
I was coming from north of town, and I was looking at our steeple, and I was praying, and I was like, Lord, what are you going to do? Oh, man, this is so incredible, and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And as I'm, you know, kind of praising him, kind of just building myself up, uh, he, he literally stops me in the car, and he says, don't have too small a vision for what you think I'm going to do. It's not all about you in this little building. And he said, look over here. And as I looked, there's Crosspoint. And at the time, I was like, am I going to Crosspoint? Because um, I didn't want to do that. And, uh, but I didn't know what to do with that. He said, he said, and then what he said is, he said, believe for more. Believe me for more. And I just didn't know what that looked like until I'm standing in his office. And I'm like, holy smokes. This is what he meant. Because they're our family. We're part of the same family. And Jesus' prayer is that we would be one. One heart. One mind. Desperately crying out for more of his presence. And so I wanted to let you know it's happening. There's some incredible things happening. Isn't that amazing? And so, so now we're praying for each other at 11. Every Tuesdays, we're, we're praying from here, and we're going to go over there sometimes. And, and, and it's just going to be this interesting, amazing thing that the Lord is doing. Because we're a family. And family is bigger than this. It's bigger than that. It's the body of Christ. That's who we're called to be. So every week we end with a, a writing from the early church uh, about all of this. And Barry, you can come up as we finish. And so we're going to read, it's the Apology of Tertullian. This was written in 197 AD. Because I want you to see that the church is bigger than systems. It's bigger than buildings. It's bigger than, than an idea. It's bigger than man. It's Jesus' church. And what we're doing now has been going on for 2,000 years. And, and it will continue to go on until the Lord returns because nothing, not even hell itself, can stop us because it's his. So it says, uh, we are a body knit together as such by common religious profession. So he's telling about the church, the early church. This is uh, written in 197 AD. By unity of discipline and by the bond of a common hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that, offering up prayer to God as with united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications. This strong exertion God delights in. We pray, too, for the emperors, for their ministers, and for all in authority, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation. We assemble to read our sacred writings, and with the sacred words, we nourish our faith, we animate our hope, we make our confidence more steadfast, and no less by inculcations of God's precepts, we confirm good habits. In the same place are exhortations made, rebukes and sacred censures are administered, for with a great gravity is the work of judging carried on among us, as befits those who feel assured that they are in the sight of God. And you have the most notable example of judgment to come when anyone has sinned so grievously as to require his severance from us in prayer, in the congregation, and in all sacred intercourse. The tried men of our elders preside over us, obtaining that honor not by purchase but by established character. 
There is no buying and selling of any sort in the things of God. Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money, as of a religion that has its price. On the monthly day, if he likes, each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure, and only if he be able, for there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are not spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck, and if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the island or shut up in the prisons for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See, they say about us, how they are ready even to die for one another, for they themselves would sooner kill. So what does the church look like? It looks like people beyond anything else that love each other. And as the world is tumultuous with hate and insight and greed, we stand against that by our love for each other. And that's our end here, is that it, by ending in loving one another, then we know and we give glory to God because he says, Jesus says that the world knows that he is real by the way that we love each other. That's our goal. And so we want to continue to grow in this family, grow in our idea of family, to grow in are we loving each other? Are we caring for one another? And it's why we exist, is to build a family that loves one another. That's it. So that God gets glory. And as we do that, we'll have gatherings downstairs as for food, and we'll do things, and, and cross point, We'll put a skating rink out. But it's so that we love one another. Because I love ice skating. You see what we're doing? We just love each other. And that's the, that's the goal. That's the end. We love us here. We love the church across the street. We're family. And so the... The thing that we have to do then is to repent of negative things we've said about our brothers and our sisters. Disagreements between us that, that cause us and lead us to anger, it's not what he desires. We've probably all spoken ill of other churches. That's a sin. And we need to repent of that. Because it's his bride we're talking about. And we have to be careful about how we talk about his bride. Even if we don't understand. So we're going to worship and just take a time for repentance and just, Lord, we're sorry for anything that we've said about any members of your body. 
It doesn't mean that we're unaware of things that are going on that don't need to go on. But it does mean that we're leading with love. And so that's the prayer for today. It's just, Lord, would you just clear our hearts of things that we've said about other people, of other churches, of our brothers and sisters. Forgive us of our pride and our arrogance that we know what the one way is. And then would you give us a love for our brothers and sisters so that he is glorified. And then if you need prayer for anything specific, we would love for you to come down here. We have a prayer team. And they'll pray for you. And, and we'll see some stuff. Some miraculous stuff. We'll see some healings. Uh, we'll see people arrested by the love of the Father. We'll see people known. So we'll open that up in, in just a moment. But right now as we sing, if you could stand. And again, the prayer is, just search my heart, Lord. Would you bring me my careless words to mind? And then would you forgive me of those? So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We invite you here to search our hearts, to have your way with us. Would you forgive us of the things that we've said about your bride? For all upcoming events or more information about the Nashville Vineyard Church, please check us out at www.nashvillevineyard.org. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you have a great day.